Well, good morning. We are continuing in our sermon series to the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Servant and Savior, Jesus Christ, Servant and Savior. If you picked up an outline on your way in this morning, you might want to pull that out if you're a note-taking kind of a person. And uh, I do want to make mention that, again, once again, that Larry Bailey is writing these wonderful companion articles that go with each section that I preach on. And uh, sometimes Larry and I are on the same wavelength, and sometimes he sees something very different than I see. And so it's kind of cool just to see how God is, is working that way through the same passage of Scripture. So I commend those great articles to you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 in just a few moments. Well, outside Corpus Christi, Texas, a husband and a wife were working in their backyard when the man suddenly grabbed a shovel to decapitate a snake, a four-foot-long western diamondback rattlesnake, after the snake spooked his wife. After he cut the head off of the snake, he went to pick up the severed head, and that head sank its fangs into his flesh and released a near-deadly dose of venom. About two miles into the drive to the hospital with her husband, the wife recognized that he was suddenly having seizures, he was losing his vision, and unbeknownst to them, he was bleeding internally. After calling 911, they met up with an ambulance and then a helicopter, which flew the 40-year-old man to the nearest hospital where his organs were already beginning to shut down. Well, reporters got hold of this and they asked an expert, Dr. Harry Green, a biology professor at Cornell University about snakes and snake bites, and he said a, a, a severed viper head can deliver a dangerous bite. So can the unsecured head of the recently killed snake. He went on to say that he suspects the man received a, an extra powerful dose of venom because he said living snakes typically strike quickly and then draw back from whatever it is that they perceive as a threat. But because the one in this instance was dead, it most likely latched on to the man and stayed latched on until somebody was able to forcibly remove it. And so it should go without saying, the professor announced, no one should be trying to pick up a rattlesnake, dead or alive. And I thought, that sounds like good advice to me. Well, you know, in Scripture, one of the pictures of Satan is a serpent. And so we might think of him like a snake with a severed head. The cross has stripped him of life, but he still has some limited power to tempt us to sidetrack us, to hurt us, to draw us away from God's purpose in our life. And so like the man in the backyard, when we experience some sort of a, a spiritual high, I saved my wife from a snake, we might then need to get ready for a spiritual low, a snake bite. And so as we continue in this series from the gospel according to Mark, our focus today is on gospel-centered living. Now last week we looked at John the Baptist as he modeled for us putting Christ ahead of ourselves. 
And we also observe that at the baptism of Jesus, all three members of the Trinity were present when Jesus was baptized as the Spirit descended like a dove. The highlight of that passage was when the Father exclaimed from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, that would be quite a spiritual high, don't you think? To hear the voice of God thundering from heaven saying, good job, son, I'm pleased with you. You would think that after that incredible coronation that Jesus would experience a, a, a pretty um, easy entry into his ministry. It would have been pretty cool if at that moment the angels would have broken out into the hallelujah chorus and the crowds would have began to cheer. But that's not what happened at all. And so here's our big idea for today. It is costly to follow Christ, but the price is always worth it. It's always worth paying the price to follow Jesus. When we sign up to follow the Savior, it is likely that we will experience some hardship and some suffering. And we're going to see this in three brief pictures from the life of Jesus found in our text today. Mark 1, verses 12 through 20. And so let's start by considering first the tough temptation. Look what happens right after the baptism of Jesus. Verses 12 and 13 of our text. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Well, let's see if we can pull out some principles from this tough temptation time that Jesus experienced. And the first thing I want us to notice is that temptation often comes right after a significant spiritual experience. Notice that word immediately. Remember, we learned in the introduction that that is one of Mark's favorite words in his gospel. Immediately. There is no lag between Jesus' great triumph and his temptation. And that's often true in our spiritual walk as well. We are often more vulnerable when we are coming out of a great victory. There's a great example in the Old Testament of this, uh, uh, an experience of the prophet Elijah. You can read about this in 1 Kings 18. Elijah was involved in this great spiritual and physical battle versus a whole slew of, of false prophets. Elijah stands in front of King Ahab and a huge assembled crowd of Israelites, and he challenges them. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah sees the fire of God come from heaven and consume the sacrifice there on the top of Mount Carmel. And then there's this great battle between Elijah and the 400 wicked prophets of Baal as they're put to death. And then... Elijah prays, and it rains for the first time in three and a half years. And then finally, in a superhuman uh, uh, feat of strength, Elijah outruns the chariot of King Ahab. All of that, think about that. That's an amazing day. Everything is going right for Elijah. But the, less than 24 hours later, King Ahab reports back to his wife Jezebel about what had happened, and, and she issues a death warrant 
for Elijah. So Elijah goes on the run. He's taken off running from Jezebel. He becomes so depressed, so distraught that he asks God to just let him die. He went from the mountain of victory to the valley of defeat, of mourning in one day. And you see, temptation so often comes when we are led by our emotions. Whether we're high or low, if we're not careful, if we can give in when we allow our emotions to overshadow what is real and what is true. And so as God's people, we must hold on to truth, on to what God says is reality, especially in the midst of difficult times. Well, the next thing I want you to see is that sometimes the Holy Spirit sends us into trials so that we can learn to stand up against that temptation. It's interesting to me that in our text we read that the Spirit immediately drove him out. That phrase, drove him out, it's pretty vivid, isn't it? And it's very forceful. Literally, it means to to throw out by strong compulsion. It's the same word that is used when Jesus is casting out demons or when he is driving out the money changers from the temple. And so we need to understand that sometimes the Spirit drives us in to a difficult time in life so that we can learn something. Now we want to clarify, God doesn't necessarily lead us into temptation, but he does allow hardships so that we can be strengthened spiritually. In James chapter one, James reminds us, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Satan and his demons are in the business of tempting us, driving us towards sin. God is in the business of urging us, coming alongside us so that we will overcome and not give in to the temptation. He provides a way out so that we will not sin. We're reminded of that in that great passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where the Apostle Paul tells us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The third thing we want to see here is that times of temptation and trial sometimes take a long time. Look at the verse, first part of verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, the wilderness is a place of danger and doom and death. No one wanted to even go through it, much less spend 40 days there. In Scripture, the number 40 is significant. It's often associated with testing and preparation. You might remember that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness Moses spent 40 years in training to lead the Israelites. The spies spent 40 days in Canaan, and the Israelites heard Goliath curse God for 40 days before David came on the scene and grabbed a slingshot. Now, I don't know about your temptation, if it's going to last four minutes or four hours or four days 
or 40 years. But I want you to know this. It will certainly last longer than you want it to. And that's when we need to hold on to God's Holy Spirit. And then finally in this section, sometimes we are called to suffer in isolation. Notice that middle part of verse 13. And he was with the wild animals. Interestingly, it would have been very encouraging for the first century readers of Mark's gospel, those that lived in Rome, to know that Jesus spent 40 days with wild animals. That's because when Mark writes his gospel, it's at a time when Christians are literally being fed to the wild lions as a form of entertainment and increased persecution. So imagine them reading about their Lord, spending time with wild animals. But we can take heart, folks, as we think about this, because God gives us what we need to tackle those temptations. Even when we feel isolated, we are never alone. That is a truth that we must hold on to. Notice how verse 13 ends. And the angels were ministering to him. That word minister means to wait upon, to serve. It's the idea of meeting practical needs like food and water, which was exactly what Jesus would need at the end of those 40 days of temptation. I think it's interesting that Mark doesn't give us a whole lot more detail about the tough times of temptation that Jesus experienced. And I wonder if it's because his purpose is to show that Jesus was on a mission to be our servant and our savior. Now, if you want to read more about the temptation and how tough it was, you can check out Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 later. But let's just remember this. It's costly to follow Christ, but the price is always worth paying. We see that first in times of tough temptation. And then next, let's look at real repentance. Now, we know that both John and Jesus preached a message of real repentance. Look at verses 14 and 15 where we read Jesus' first public words as recorded in Mark. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we know that John the Baptist continued preaching for about six months after the time of Jesus' baptism. And then during that time, he called out King Herod publicly because King Herod was living in adultery. We know that John did not compromise truth and didn't water down the message of repentance, even when he was speaking to someone in great authority and power. And as a result, he was arrested and thrown in jail. If you know the rest of the story, you know that about a year later, Herod had John beheaded. And we'll learn more about that when we get to Mark chapter 6. But after John was arrested, it's interesting that Jesus came into Galilee. Galilee was the district of Herod. Jesus didn't shy away from confrontation either as he moved directly into the danger zone, calling for repentance. So let's pull out some principles from this section of the passage. First, the gospel that we proclaim comes from God himself. When Jesus came into Galilee, we read that he came proclaiming the gospel of God. That word proclaim means to announce loudly, 
This was not a secretive thing that Jesus was doing. And of course, we know that the word gospel means good news. So Jesus comes, but he doesn't come bringing a pep talk or a feel-good message or a self-help discussion. Jesus comes proclaiming, announcing loudly the need for the people to repent and believe in the good news, the gospel of God. Folks, there is plenty of self-help and self-focused material available for us in this world today. But as followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, our main mission is to stick to the good news of Jesus. While there are a multitude of issues that we can invest our time and focus our energies on, from areas of justice to politics to economics to health and wellness, we must take care to not allow any of those things to rise above our focus on the gospel of God, the gospel of repentance. The real gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, about his death and his burial and his resurrection and all that is encompassed by that. Christ calls us now to repent and to receive him into our lives. That is the real, true gospel, which must remain our focus. And then here's another principle. God's timing is always perfect. Mark tells us that the time was now fulfilled for Jesus to launch into his ministry. There's a little passage in Galatians chapter 4 where Paul teaches us, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. And the idea is that something is complete, that it's fully developed, like ripe fruit ready to be picked, or like corn and beans ready to be harvested by the farmer. And so the expression is also used even like for a pregnant woman who feels labor pains as she gets ready to deliver her baby. It is the fullness of time. And so the stage was perfectly set, fully ready for Jesus to come and to do his work. And we know that Jesus operated according to the Father's timetable. He lived with an acute awareness of God's divine timing. One time speaking to his mother, he said, my time has not yet come. Another time to his brothers who had their own sense of timing for Jesus, he said, my time has not yet fully come. That time fully comes only when he dies on the cross. We can read about that in Romans 5, 6, where it says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, we are so often ignorant of the timeline that God is working on. Or worse yet, sometimes we try to force God into our timeline. And brothers and sisters, let us carefully Look to our own response to the gospel and focus on our own belief and repentance before assuming that we know God's timetable, whether it's God's timetable for others or for this world that we live in. Let's focus on God's time for us. And this leads us then to a third principle. The gospel calls people to turn from their sins and to trust in the Savior. That message is clear and concise and compelling. Repent and believe in the gospel was Jesus' simple statement. 
We learned last week that John preached that message of repentance as well. And we want to remember that repentance uh, is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. And so it's our job to repent and receive. It's not enough just to, to try to turn over a new leaf. Nor is it enough just to, to enjoy God's goodness without making any change in our life. Those things go together. And so are you increasingly, increasingly repenting from your sins and trusting in Christ's finished work on your behalf? Remember that it's costly to follow Christ, but the price is always, always worth paying. Temptations are tough. Repentance must be real. And that leads us to our final truth, demanding discipleship. Demanding discipleship. Jesus now calls four of his disciples and he makes some strong demands on them. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As Jesus walks on the seashore, he sees these two brothers fishing. And let's break down what happens next. First, follow Jesus says, follow me. Well, students often followed rabbis. It was very unusual for a rabbi to call someone to follow him. But I love how Jesus calls people to follow him. He calls you and he calls me to follow him as well. We spend time with him. We walk where he walked, watching and listening to what he did so that we can become like him. Jesus said, once said, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So first, we must follow. Secondly, fish. Fish. Jesus calls us to follow, and then he gives us our mission. I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I want you to notice that this is not something that will come easy because it says Jesus has to make us become fishers of men. It's important to understand what may have been going through the minds of these men when they first heard these words about being fishers of men. You know, according to the, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 16 and Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47, when God refers to fishers of men, he is referring to a coming judgment these fishermen would make sure that no Israelite escapes the judgment that is coming from God. And so how ironic is it that when the time of God's promised deliverance begins, this metaphor of fishing reappears. This time, though, Jesus calls followers who would fish for people, fish for men. And yet they were not there to execute God's judgment Rather, they were bringing good news, good news of the kingdom of God and backing up that news with works of compassion and power and mercy. The promised time of restoration had finally come. The disciples of Jesus are to seek out people so as to catch them for the kingdom. And folks, that is our mission as well. It wasn't just for these four men by the seashore that day. It's a mission that's been handed down to us. 
to respond with compassion and mercy, drawing people in to the kingdom of God. And then finally, follow, fish, and then forsake. Forsake. Notice how quickly they decide to become disciples. Again, there's that word. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. The word left literally means they severed all their ties. It's a very specific word. They severed their ties. Jesus was worth more than anything that they were walking away from. It's helpful for us to know that this is not the first time that these men had encountered Jesus. They were present when Jesus was baptized. They heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God. And then in John chapter 1, we read that these first two men, Andrew, said to Simon, We have found the Messiah. So you see, they had begun to put their faith in Christ months before. But now, they left everything behind. They leave their lives behind to fully follow the Lord. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus calls two more disciples to follow him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In both cases, these men forsake what they had in order to follow Christ. With James and John even leaving a family business to quit mending nets and begin to mend broken lives. You see, folks, discipleship, following Jesus, being a disciple is disruptive to our life. If your life is not being disrupted by Jesus, then you might want to question your whole role in this exercise of discipleship. Jesus is to have priority over our family and our friends and our future. Everything else must be second to the Savior. We learned that from John the Baptist last week. The call of Jesus is both personal and public. Jesus calls each of them, and all four follow in order to fish, and they all forsake everything in order to do so. The great 19th century evangelist Henry Ironside was interrupted once during a sermon by the shouts of an atheist. The atheist yelled, there is no God. Jesus is a myth. And then finally he yelled out to the preacher, Mr. Ironside, I challenge you to a debate. And instantly Ironside responded, I accept your challenge, sir, but on one condition. When you come, bring with you 10 men and women whose lives have been changed for the better by the message of atheism. Bring former prostitutes and criminals whose lives have been changed, who are now moral and responsible individuals. Bring outcasts who have had no hope and have them tell of how becoming an atheist has lifted them out of the pit of despair. And sir, Ironside concluded, if you can find 10 such men and women, I will be happy to debate you. And when I come, I will gladly bring with me 200 men and women from this very city whose lives have been transformed in just those ways by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus changes lives. 
He's in the business of changing your life and changing my life. How open to that change are you? You know, you can pay extra for lots of things these days. You can pay extra to buy jeans that are already ripped up and torn so that they look old and they cost three times as much as the decent jeans. Did you know that you can buy spray-on mud for your 4x4 so that it looks like it's been off-road? That's a real thing. But here's what I want you to see. There are no easy shortcuts to maturity in Jesus Christ. Rory Gallagher was a famed Irish blues guitarist, and he played a battered old Fender guitar. The paint was stripped off most of it. It was, it was worn, it was gritty, and it went well with the gritty blues music that he used it to play. A young man by the name of Johnny Marr was a teen musician who admired Gallagher's guitar so much that he took his own guitar into the, the woodworking room at his high school and he trained a blowtorch on it in order to try and make it have that aged look of the Gallagher guitar. The problem was that he set his guitar on fire and then he nearly burned down the high school. But to get the battered look of the Gallagher guitar that took a long time, a long time in a lot of Irish pubs and clubs over many years. Folks, we might think that if we would just read the Bible more and do more things, that we might quickly become a mature Christian. But that's not so. We have to go through times of difficulty, through the hard knocks of life, if we are to follow the example of our Savior. You know, Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before he was used by God to lead his people. You might remember that Joseph spent 13 years in an Egyptian prison before God used him to lead his people. Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity before spending three years changing the world. And so what is God taking, through you, taking you through right now? What's going on in your life? What hardships exist? I want to challenge you to embrace those hardships. Embrace them, and as you do, trust him. Trust him, because Christ-likeness does not come quickly, and it doesn't come cheaply. Jesus Christ changes lives, and he does so as we go through temptations, as we experience real repentance, and as we hold on to the demands of discipleship. Remember that it is costly, costly to follow Christ, but it will always be worth it. Let's pray together. Father God,